how does the world work? You know, the world is very complicated. A lot of stuff going on. You know, practically anything that you want to look at in terms of how the world works, what you'll find is that, you know, between points A and B, there's actually this whole kind of underground network of middlemen, enablers, supply chains, logistics, hubs, distributed systems, every kind of public-facing endeavor, be it a government or a big company. You know, there's all these other little things going on underneath. That's what's actually making stuff happen. Finding that stuff is like what, what makes the world tick. And for every Amazon that everyone in the world has heard of, you know, there's going to be a bunch of other companies sitting underneath it, making things happen that nobody's heard of. You're listening to Exposing the Invisible, interviews with investigators about their methods, their communities, and what motivates them to keep going. My name is Crofton Black. I'm a investigator. I work at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. I do uh, research consultancy. I do litigation support and uh, bits and pieces for other people who have investigative needs. A mixture of journalism and legal stuff and work for NGOs and so on. Me ending up as an investigator was like a, an unexpected career move, not really something I ever anticipated. My background was in um, classics and English literature, English, Latin and Greek, and then in medieval and Renaissance philosophy. I did a PhD in that. I worked for a time as a cataloger of Islamic manuscripts for an art gallery. I worked later on as a book cataloger for a book dealer in London. Yeah, I kind of accidentally ended up with uh, a job as an investigator at this NGO called Reprieve. They they basically hired, hired me as a, what they called at the time a, a secret prisons and extraordinary renditions investigator. I was living in Berlin and a friend of mine sent me a like a job advert for this outfit called Reprieve. And she said, oh, you know, why don't you, why don't you look at this? It sounds like it might suit you. And I was like, well, yeah, it sounds really interesting, you know, but um, I, I don't know anything about this stuff. I don't have any background in law. I don't have any background in NGOs. I've never worked for an NGO. Like I know how to research stuff, but, you know, I don't really know anything else beyond that. And it might have been that, you know, that was that, except for I ran into someone at a party the next week who worked for this same NGO and we got talking and she said to me, why don't you apply for this job then if, you've, if you're interested in it? And I said, no, that's a crazy idea. I said, I'm not going to apply for this job. But I said, you know, if you guys need some like freelance support, you know, if you need like me to do some pro bono research work for you anytime, just hit me up. I'll see if I can help you out. And they did. They were interested in 
this rumor that there had been a secret detention site in Mauritania. And I'd actually been to Mauritania on holiday uh, some years before. So I kind of like, I at least knew where it was on the map and I had some kind of concept of what it was like as a country. So they got me in to like spend a few days looking at like Google Earth pictures of Mauritania and trying to kind of see if I could synthesize from the various press accounts. Like, was there like a, a field, a diameter of um, whatever, a circumference of interest within which this secret prison site might have been or whatever? It was like a kind of very basic bit of kind of open source investigation. So I did that and then I did a report on it for them. And then a few weeks later, I did another thing for them. And then basically I went back to Berlin and I was like just carrying on doing my thing. And for whatever reason, some months later, they called me up and they said, did I want a job? And I said, well, you know, the job for medieval philosophy graduates isn't the best, the job market at the moment. So I said, okay, yeah, why not? I'll make a, I'll make a leap of faith into the world of um, NGO investigating. It sort of should have been a big change, but it wasn't really that big a change because mentally speaking, the research tools I was using were pretty much the same as before. It's like, you know, being a historian, how do you analyze evidence? How do you, um, how do you locate sources? How do you assess sources? What, what, what is the kind of cause and effect of uh, a certain phenomenon? And also... Like fundamentally, the importance of chronology, like as a as an investigator, I'm like a chronology obsessive. So when I when I was working in with uh, the book dealer, basically, I would go in in the morning and into the office in central London, and there'd be like a pile of books on the desk. And they could be about anything, you know, there could be like, this is a first edition of some obscure 18th century scientific work about optics. and this one here is a piece of early 1920s um, surrealist artwork. So basically, I was used to kind of moving around. I move around and like in different subject areas, and I'm like, okay, so today I'm working on optics, and tomorrow I'm working on surrealism, and the day after is some religious controversies. In, in that sense, it wasn't that weird to me that I would end up, you know, oh, today I'm looking at prisons in Afghanistan and tomorrow I'm looking at flight logistics and the day after I'm looking at satellite photos of Mauritania. Like, I already kind of was used to working in that way, in a sense. I liked digging around in libraries and archives and... I guess looking at the sort of the, the data of the past, you know, these books that nobody really was interested in anymore, that said something about how people thought 500 years ago or whatever. I was drawn to, let's say, some of the more um, kind of esoteric aspects of uh, the history of thought at that time. Uh, mysticism, I was interested in Kabbalah. I was interested in um, how people tried to express their ideas of, you know, humanity's place in the universe in these kind of strange coded manuscripts where they jumbled up all the letters of the Bible or the Torah or whatever and tried to extract codes from them. I was interested in kind of cracking these codes, trying to understand what what was going on in these in these very obscure books 
there's quite a strong analogy in my mind between um, certain medieval manuscripts that I spent many hours in the library looking at trying to understand and the process of understanding, say, 50,000 lines of flight data when you're looking for that one particular pattern in it that is going to make sense of an entire problem. These things have, like, eureka moments when, you know, the mind suddenly, kind of eventually, suddenly has an insight that has been, you know, this insight that's been, like, avoiding you for sometimes weeks or months or longer. Those moments occur. They've occurred in my academic life when I've been looking at a manuscript for, like, weeks and I can't figure out what a certain word is and then suddenly I see it and I, the whole page makes sense and they have occurred in my investigative life when you know I've been looking at a whole set of flight data and trying to figure out why I can't see a plane to a certain place on a certain day when there's meant to be one and then suddenly I understand why it is. The main difference between what I do now and what I did when I initially started as an investigator professionally is that, you know, now I write stuff more often. You know, obviously writing comes in different genres. So, you know, like back in the day, I wrote very, um, let's say, technical things about Renaissance philosophy. And now I sometimes write quite technical things about flight logistics, but I also write kind of what you could more broadly call stories that fit into the criteria of what the the world of news media or whatever thinks are stories. So those are things that have a certain structure. You know, obviously you think that being being a journalist, a lot of it is about like, so what's the story? Um, and this is often quite baffling for somebody like me who didn't come up in journalism as such I have to like put myself in the mindset of my editors or other people who are like perhaps more more naturally journalists than I am I think a lot of things are interesting which apparently um, other people don't think are interesting rightly or wrongly despite the differences between working as say a you know a, a lawyer's assistant basically doing investigation work for a legal case seems like a very different thing from being a journalist. It is very different. But they have similarities. And I mean, one thing that is similar between them is they don't, they're not, they don't really like ambiguity. They're not very comfortable with, with too much complexity. They like things to be a chain of events that makes sense, that leads to a particular conclusion, or like that leads at least to a recognizable narrative. But of course, this is often not really the case. You know, life is very complicated. When you work in investigations, obviously, you come across a lot of quite unusual and weird stuff. And some of that is the thing that you're investigating might in itself be a complicated thing. But the other aspect is, you know, you inevitably you rub up against all the kinds of usual human complexities and contingencies and weirdnesses of like how people's lives work and strange coincidences and things that don't really make sense that you can't really deal with, prepare for whatever. You can't fit them into your narrative. And those things, generally speaking, have to be jettisoned or brushed under the carpet, which is sometimes a pity because they still, you know, those things say stuff about life. They say stuff about the world, whatever. When, for example, I wrote my book on rendition flights that I did with the artist Edmund Clark, we one of the decisions we took in making that book was that we actually wanted to showcase some of this complexity and some of... Um, 
you know, put in the things that weren't ever going to get put in the legal filings or the journalism because they were like, you know, these are the dead ends and these are the things that we can't explain. And this is the, we got this far on this particular line of thought and then no further, or it just led us back to where we started again. So we actually structured the book to reflect that experience. We did that partly because we wanted to do something different from what standardly you need to do when you work in this area. There are moments along the way where colleagues and I have have managed to figure things out. And some of those moments have been kind of surprising. When when I was uh, working on rendition flights and uh, secret attention stuff, we had a lucky break. I was just sitting there Googling like company names and wondering, do this like every few weeks, nothing interesting comes up, you know, is anything ever going to change? And so one week I did it and something came up and I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, there's been some litigation around um, a couple of these companies. So I was like, I wonder, I wonder what that means. This is very kind of early, I guess, in my investigative career. You know, I called up this guy, Steve, I was working with. I was like, Steve, you know, how do I, how do I, how do I get a court file from like some court in the US? What do I have to do? And he's like, oh, okay. He's like, I'll give him a bell. Uh, and then to cut a long story short, we got this box of stuff FedExed over from the court and we opened it up and it was just like this mad treasure trove of invoices for rendition flights. All the kind of blanks that we'd been scratching our heads over, puzzling over, like why why don't we understand this thing and that thing and that thing, like practically not entirely but practically the answers to it all were in this set of invoices that that's an unpredictable event basically arguably you have to put in the graft for those moments to occur because otherwise you don't know you know you don't you you don't see them when they're there you know you have to have like done the background work to be able to understand when you come across one of these life-changing moments that, that that is what it is so we were in the office and, you know, we're a sort of a small cash-strapped organization and um, there was a lawyer sitting in the in the room listening in on our conversation. He just turned around and he was like, he's like, it's chump change, chump change, get it done. I always remember that phrase because, like, sometimes you've just got to make the investment and be like, you know, this is worth it. We're going to spend a grand on this. It's going to change everything. Um, and it did. We work in kind of project streams. So there'll be a project stream that I sit in within. Previously, it was this thing we called Shadow Wars. And now it's the um, project called Decision Machines. But within that, we have a constant sort of process of discussion about what are we actually working on? You know, what's the story that was happening at the moment? What are the ones that we're thinking of trying to do afterwards? Because I'm always sort of digging around and looking at sort of odd bits and pieces and looking at court records and data sets and um there are certain things where i have like a sort of list of things that i haven't had time to look at where i'm like oh you know maybe one day i'll look into this thing a bit more to 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 an extent it's also about trying to do stuff that other people aren't doing there's not that much point if you are you know in my position trying to compete with for example what the new york times is doing you know, I keep up to date on what, what I see in the in the media generally. 
what's on Twitter, you know, what's like seems to be going on in certain areas. And I guess I'm trying to think about what's the thing underneath all this that people aren't really talking about, you know, because there normally is something. You know, in my in my experience, like a lot of it, it kind of comes down to infrastructure. What is the hidden infrastructure that is underlying this series? You know, you might have like two or three or a dozen stories about a particular thing, but like, what is the infrastructure underlying it that makes all these things happen? Like, why do things happen the way they do? Kind of, that's what I gravitate towards, basically. There was a lot of news going on about this. It was kind of like a political campaign in South Africa about so-called uh, white monopoly capital. It was pretty pretty complicated backstory, but in, in essence, there were very considerable corruption allegations that had been made at the ruling party. You know, the president and his connections to like various businessmen and. Uh, there was a, a kind of a social media campaign that was launched to try and undermine these allegations. And the premise of the campaign was that basically the people who were complaining about uh, the corruption in the government were, you know, let's say, white monopoly capitalists. So they were people who were opposed to, like, you know, the new South Africa. They were reactionaries they were like anti-anc they were like basically bad people you know so it was a way of deflecting attention from the corruption allegations by making sort of the people who were making those allegations making them a target of a you know a kind of a social media smear campaign so so that was like the tip of the iceberg if you like but the thing that we were interested in at the time was okay so like, how does this stuff actually work? You know, and we ended up finding a company that, well, we found several, but one in particular that was doing this kind of Twitter amplification at scale and how they were doing it. And it turned, it turned out that they themselves had been implicated in some funny shenanigans going on around legal cases. And it just turned into like an unusual and interesting story that had a lot of bits in it, a lot of moving parts, a lot of kind of ins and outs that said quite a lot about how the landscape of the internet actually functions. And, you know, more than I think we anticipated finding when we set out with quite a simple question, which was, did Bell Pottinger mastermind this campaign or not? We never really answered that question, but we did find a lot of other stuff along the way that was infrastructural, if you like. The, the renditions and black site work, I mean, that's like coming up to like 11 years work now. When I, when I arrived at Reprieve, um, very soon after I got there, in fact, when I was like completely ignorant and knew nothing about anything, we had a big meeting with various legal teams and the, the topic being essentially accountability litigation for secret detention in Europe. The media had revealed over time that there'd been 
three countries in Europe that had hosted secret detention sites for the CIA, Poland, Romania, and Lithuania. There were three of us in the office at that time who were kind of roughly in this area. And we, we basically divided it up between us, you know, at random. So for whatever reason, I ended up with Lithuania. And the situation vis-a-vis Lithuania was a peculiar one because I'm talking in kind of 2011, 2010, 11, roughly. So already, you know, by this time, several people had done quite a lot of work around flight tracking, like building up flight databases of um, planes associated with the CIA that had been carrying out prisoner transfers. This was a tried and tested technique that had, had been worked on by a whole lot of people. But the weird thing about it was that none of the records that anybody really had access to had any Lithuanian connection in them. Like there was a big black hole in the map. The kind of starting point of my task at that time was find the Lithuania flights. You know, we eventually found the Lithuania flights and that led to litigation. There was a European Court of Human Rights case of um, one of our clients, Abu Zubaydah, versus Lithuania. So that case got filed. There were various kind of other inquiries going on in like the European Parliament and um, elsewhere that we contributed to. In 2014, the um, long-awaited Senate report on U.S. Senate report on um, the CIA's detention system that was published. It was the first time that anybody had actually provided like an official, complete list of the prisoners who'd been held in the CIA's sites. Because prior to that, you know, probably like through the efforts of lawyers and journalists and NGOs and so on. Several dozen had been identified, but there was there was never any kind of clarity really as to like how many people we were missing and who they were, obviously, because we didn't know. And so the thing that the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee report provided that was like a first was it provided a name for each of the individuals who'd been held in the black site system, um, of which there were, you know, 119 or something. The insight that we that we had into into that list was that basically we could take that list and we could essentially unredact it to get the dates that each of these people was moved in and out of the prison network. And we could then match that to uh, our database of flights, which we'd been building up, building up over the last five years or whatever. This was me and um, Sam Raphael, who I was working with from Westminster University, We accumulated all the public info we could about each of those individuals, started constructing our chronology. The Senate Intelligence Committee report had an appendix which had all these names in a list. It was an obvious interpretation of that list that it was a chronological list because some of the names were well known. And we obviously knew like when those guys had been picked up and taken into the prison system. So it was a matter of figuring out, okay, someone who we don't know, we know that he's after this date and before that date, because we know that he's like after this guy on the list and before that guy. What Sam Raphael figured out kind of halfway through this process was that actually the the way the report had been redacted, because it was written in a certain font in a certain pitch you could measure 
the blacked out rectangles and they were consistent. They were applied consistently across the report, which meant that when you had a contextual piece of information that a certain blacked out box represented, say, a month, then there's only 12 months and they all measure different lengths. So you could pretty much tell like what the month was under that box. You could tell whether a digit was a single digit or a double digit. We could start to say quite confidently that, you know, a certain date was like, you know, it was 1 to 9 April or 10 to 31 May. We could cross correlate all our information with this insight into how the redactions worked, which would point to like where we were correct in terms of how we were building this chronology that we built. And it just kind of went on like that. And the, you know, the more information and the more cross correlations we made, the more specific the dates became. Fundamentally, it kind of opened up the program as a whole, like with a, like with a can opener, you know what I mean? Uh, it really changed the level of the data and the specificity and the concreteness of what we were able to say about how that whole system functioned, basically. You know, there's a lot of questions that you, that, that you never solve. Um, and then there's some that you do. And there's a lot of like projects that never see the light of day. And I mean, my computer is like littered with, you know, half done investigations. They, they weren't viable. They couldn't get finished. They um, got stuck at some point. Like all the stuff that I've done, like has, has come through experimentation, basically. That, that, that's how you stop it from actually being a failure, is you learn something methodological and then you take it on to the next thing. I'm constantly experimenting with like, what can I do with Excel? What can I do with SQL? What can I do with Python? What can I do with like forensic domain analysis? Or like, what can I, maybe you can just learn all this stuff. I don't know. But as far as my practice goes, like I've learned it all through trial and error. Trial and error has been on like kind of investigations that we've tried to do stuff. And for one reason and another, it hasn't worked out. But, you know, you kind of take the tools, move it forward and apply them somewhere else. And that's partly why it's so time consuming, because you need to have the, the space and the time to do these experiments and see what happens. And like when they fail, ideally, it's not a disaster. Like if I got sacked from my job every time an experiment failed, I'd have had like, you know, 30 or 40 different jobs by now. If you had said to somebody 10 years ago, please, will you fund a decade-long investigation into CIA secret prisons? They would have said no. They would have said no. You can have like a two-year investigation. There you go. I guess I have certain kind of basic philosophies of investigation which have sort of served in different, in different contexts. The way, the way I visualize it, you know, normally there's like a scaly carapace and then there's a soft underbelly. You know, the scaly carapace is quite well protected. You can't, you can't get in there. It might be like classified secrets or it might be um, 
unavailable for whatever reason. And then the soft underbelly is like somewhere where you can get in, where the same or similar information happens to exist. How do you find the the soft underbelly? You have to understand the information flow. You have to understand the distributed system. If you understand how information is distributed throughout a system, you can hopefully understand like where are the heavily guarded points, and where are the relatively accessible points, and then maybe if you're lucky, you have a better chance of finding the information you want. spoke to someone a few months ago who who was a, a computer systems designer he's like it's the way the world's going humans are not sufficiently afraid of complexity for sure there are people who are adept at um, turning that to their advantage and there, there always will be you know it's like water blows into any crack that that it, that it, that it, that it can find the reason they can do that is often that the systems are broken or too complex or have grown organically over time and are like now being used in ways that weren't previously imagined or in new contexts. So there's a lot of like cracks for the water to flow into basically. Exposing the Invisible is a podcast by Tactical Tech with funding from the European Commission. Interview and production by Joe Barrett. From Tactical Tech, the Exposing the Invisible team is me, Wael Skanda, Laura Ranka, Marek Tyshinsky, and Christy Lang.